This morning, we're in the final week of our repurposed series, this series within a series, this mini-series as we go through the book of Romans. We've been spending four weeks on Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, a repurposed life. This morning, I want to talk about that word there, discern, and that is a repurposed piece of glass as well. As I forgot to mention last week, that comes from our Belmont campus, all the windows we had to take out when we redid that building. I thought, I can't throw them all away. I'll find a way to use it somehow. Um, So this is the best I could come up with. Uh, But we're going to be talking about the word discern this morning. How many of you have ever had to take a multiple choice test? Multiple choice test, everybody, right? Everyone knows what a multiple choice test is. The great thing about a multiple choice test is they give you the answer, right? I mean, that's the great thing, that in the, on the page right before you is the answer to the question. And that's wonderful. The awful thing about a multiple choice test is they intentionally try and hide the answer from you in the test. And many of us, as we've taken these tests over the years, and taking them in school and, and different places, you know, they can be easy and some of them can be really difficult. Sometimes you're taking one of these tests and you're going through and you've studied and you're like, yep, this is the right answer, right? You're filling in those little circles, you know, trying not to go outside the lines, making sure to erase completely and all of that stuff. And you're going down and answering them. And then sometimes you come to a question and you read the question And then you read letter A, and you're like, yep, that's the right answer. But before you fill in the circle, you think, well, I'm going to be a good student. I'm going to read through the rest of the answers. And you read letter B, and you say, wait, wait, that's the right answer. And then you read letter C, and you say, oh, wait, that's the right answer. And you, ah, I got it. I'm going to get to E, and it's going to be an all of the above. But you get to E, and it's not an all of the above. In fact, you get to E, and it looks like the right answer, too. Some of you have been in this situation. So you put your head up, and you look around, and none of the other students are looking quite as befuddled as you. So you're thinking, what do I do? And maybe you get up, and you go to the teacher, and you say, hey, look, I think there's a problem with this question. You know, you made a mistake. They're all the right answer. And then the teacher in that moment that gives direction but not much clarity says these words, well, choose the best answer. (laughs) And you go back to your seat trying to figure out what to choose because now these are the hardest ones, right? You have to choose the best. They're all right answers. They're all good answers, but you have to choose the best answer. You have to go back to your seat and try and discern what the teacher wants you to say. For those of us who follow Jesus, one of the things we want to do is we often want to do things that please God. And sometimes we'll say it this way, we want to do God's will. We want to do God's will. And sometimes this is easy, but we inevitably come across situations that are kind of like that multiple choice test where sometimes it's more difficult and we have to choose the best answer. We often have to choose between two good options. Maybe you've been in a job situation where you've had two opportunities that seem great. And you want to know which one am I supposed to choose? Which one is the best answer? Which one is God's will? 
Or maybe, you know, you're thinking about college. You're finishing up high school. You're thinking about where to go to school. And you've got the applications out. And you get, your prayer might be, Lord, just let me get accepted to my first choice. And none of the others, you know, accept me. And then I'll know that's your will. But you get the letters back. And everyone says, we'd be glad to have you as a student in our university. And you've got four or five acceptance letters, and now you have to choose the best answer. And it's not that easy. We say, well, God, what is your will for me in this time? Maybe you're in a place in your life where you have multiple options that don't seem good. Maybe you've got multiple negative options. Maybe you're in a job situation that's difficult, and you don't see how you can stay in there anymore. But if you leave, you've got no prospects on the horizon. And you look at it, and you say, I've got... Two bad choices. I'm not sure which one to take, but I've got to do something here. God, what's your will in this situation? How do I know? Sometimes we ask the question, am I in God's will? What is God's will? There's a good question. And sometimes we look at and we think about God's will and maybe you think, well, I wish God's will were a little simpler to figure out. I wish, sometimes people, I think, want God's will to be a little bit more like a fortune cookie or the magic eight ball. You remember the magic eight ball? I know none of you played with the magic eight ball. But the magic eight ball, remember, you'd shake it up. You'd ask it a question, you know, you know you'd, you'd ask it a question like, should I do my homework or watch TV? And you'd, you'd shake it up and it would say, signs point to yes. <laughs> you know, or, or you'd say, should I go, you know, should I ask Beth to the prom? And you'd shake it up and it would say, outlook not so good. <laughs> and we want God's will sometimes. We want God to just be that easy to just go and ask the question and give us an answer. Break open the cookie, just give us the answer. And then we can put God back on the shelf. We go when we need the answers But then we just, you know, we put God kind of back on the shelf, but we can go there whenever we need him. And God doesn't really work that way. But God is concerned about us knowing his will. In fact, as we come to the end of these couple of verses, the Apostle Paul uses this exact terminology. Let's look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 once again. This is what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So these verses, at the end of it, I want to focus in on this phrase here, discern what is the will of God. So maybe you're in one of these situations where you've got options. Maybe you've got to make a decision this week, and you've got good options in your life. You've got two good options. You've got to make a decision. Well, all you have to do is discern the will of God. It's as simple as that. That's what Paul says. You discern the will of God, and you do it. But, of course, the question becomes, how? How do I discern? Of course I want to discern the will of God. But how do I discern what the will of God is? That's what we want an answer to, right? Maybe you've been there. I've been there throughout life. You know, you've said things. Say, God, just, just give me a sign. And you put out a sign there. God, just give me a sign and I'll know it's you. It's like the... 
the guy that was on the bus, and he thought God was calling him to share his faith. And he said, God, if you are calling me to share my faith with the person who sits beside me, just give me a sign. The person gets on the bus, and someone sits beside him and sees him there and, and, uh, and says to him, I've been thinking a lot about God. Could you tell me about Jesus? And the guy says, hold on a second. And he prays again. He says, God, if you want me to share my faith, make the bus driver an armadillo. (laughs) And sometimes we're praying for armadillos when God is clearly directing us and leading us. We want God to give us direction, but maybe he has. Let's talk about what it is to discern the will of God. How do you do it? To discern the word, that, that kind of uh, to mean it, the meaning, to color it in a little bit, says uh, to judge to be right, commendable, or to think well of. That gives it a little bit different flavor, doesn't it? When you think to discern is to think well of, to be commendable, to judge what is right. In other words, I can look at the options before me and I can say, this one is a commendable option. This one I judge to be right. That is to discern the will of God or to discern the will. But how do you do that? How do you know which one is right, which one is commendable? Well, living the will of God and discerning the will of God the reason it comes at the end of these two verses is because actually it's the sum result of everything we've talked about for the last three weeks. What Paul is saying is that if you do these things that we've been talking about for three weeks, you will know and discern and be in the will of God. Three weeks ago, we talked about the fact in the beginning of this verse, in verse 1, not this verse, in verse 1, in the beginning of verse 1, it says, in light of God's mercies, I appeal to you that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul says the first thing you got to do is your body needs to be a living sacrifice. In other words, you need to be committed to living for God. You cannot know the will of God if you are not committed to God. So some people will say, God, I just want to know your will in this situation. You know, they want to pull the eight ball out of the drawer. They want to pull the fortune cookie off the shelf. God, I just want to know your will. But unless you are committed to living for God, you will never know the will of God. So Paul says, the first thing you need to do is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And if you are living in this way, that is the first step to discerning God's will. Because when you are committed to someone, you know what that person is thinking and would want and even what their will is, right? Think about it. If you've been working with someone for a long time, maybe you've been working with your boss for a long time, I can think of an example. I can think of it here in my life. Pastor Brian and I have been working together for over a decade Um, and as we've worked together over the years, we've gotten to know each other. And so when I leave, when I go on vacation, when I'm not in the building, when I'm not in the, you know, when I'm away, I am completely confident that he is going to know what I would do in a particular situation. Now, whether he would do that is another situation, but he will know what I would do in that situation. Now, I'm not God. I'm not always right. Pastor Brian might say, that's what Pastor Rick would do, but we're not doing that. Um, And he might be right to do that. But because we've been working together long enough, 
I really don't even have to wonder if he's going to know what I would want to do in that situation because we're committed to each other. And when you're committed to someone, you understand and you get to know what their will is. Happens in a marriage too, right? Happens in a marriage that when you're married long enough and if you pay attention a little, now someone's going to be sitting there saying, I haven't married 20 years and I still don't know what she wants. If you pay attention a little... You get this, right? You, you're around someone long enough. You're committed to someone long enough. And being by committed to them, you're interested in the things that interest them. You will know what they want. It happens, right? Wendy and I recently moved into a new house. And so when you're doing that, you're looking at all kinds of different homes, right? And you're going to different places. And once in a while, I would go to a house on my own if I had time and Wendy wasn't able to be with me. And I knew I could walk into a house and say, oh, you're not going to like this one. This is where I'm not even going to take you to that one. I walk into another one. I said, oh, you're going to, in fact, the one one we ended up moving into. I said, you're going to love this house. And she did. But how do you, how do you know that? Because when you're committed to each other, you start to learn each other. And, And it's like that with people. It's no different than with God. When you're committed, the first step in understanding and discerning the will of God is you've got to be committed to God. It happens all over the place. The other illustration I can think of is the military. If you're a soldier in the military, you have got to know what your officer would do in that particular situation and would want you to do. And how do you do that? Because you are committed to the officer. You are committed to the mission. You are committed to the organization. And when you're committed to someone and you're committed to something, it's the first step to understanding the will of that organization or that person. It's the same thing with God. See, what Paul is saying is if you will do the things that he has just laid out previously in these verses, if you will live your life in this way, you cannot not be in the will of God. And I know that's a double negative, but I still think it's the best way to say it. You cannot not be in the will of God if you will live your life in this way. So the first thing you and I need to do, just as we've been talking about, you need to be committed to God. And if you are committed to God living your life as a living sacrifice, then you'll be able to know the will of God. The second thing we talked about in verse two is that not to be conformed to the patterns of this world. Two weeks ago, we said, look, you gotta watch and check your thinking. And so make sure your thinking is not being conformed, not being shaped by the patterns of this world. What's that mean? It means there's a lot of smart people in this world. There's a lot of people in this world that we can learn a lot from, that you and I can learn a lot from. Maybe not you, but I know me. There's a lot of things I don't know, and there's a lot of things I can learn from a lot of people, and a lot of those people don't know Jesus, but I can still learn something from them. But the values that I'm going to base my life on, how I'm going to live my life, I have to make sure they are not being shaped necessarily by people and ideas that don't necessarily take God into account or aren't operating from the same premise that God is in control, that God is there, that God has created me, that God has died for me, and that God has a future for me. I can't conform to the patterns of this world. And so you have to take that into account. The third thing is we talked about last week to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Ongoing transformation, metamorphosis, ongoing process by the Holy Spirit that my mind is constantly being transformed by the Holy Spirit that lives within me, by the Word of God that is before me, and I am constantly being transformed into the person that God wants me to be. And if you are living your life committed to God in light of His mercies, not being conformed to the thinking of this world, transformed by the renewal of your mind, you cannot not be in the will of God. 
That's what he's saying. He said, the sum of all these things, what it results in is you being in God's will. You being able to discern God's will. In fact, some of your translations, rather than discern, might have test or might have prove there. But don't think of that, uh, think of that test and proof. Think of it the same way you might think of proving a mathematical equation, right? You, you prove it by going back and checking your work. You prove it by reversing the functions and going back and making sure, yeah, this works out, this answer is correct. Paul is kind of using the same type of analogy, same type of language. If you will go back and check your work and make sure that I am living my life committed to Christ, living as a living sacrifice, not being conformed to the thinking of this world and having my mind constantly transformed and renewed, you cannot not be in the will of God. That will equal God's will. That will equal discerning the will of God in your life, that you will be able to discern the good, acceptable, and perfect that God wants for you. Good, meaning morally excellent. Acceptable, meaning pleasing to God. Perfect, meaning complete. That I can look at the options before me and I can say, you know, that one is a good option, but it's maybe not morally excellent. It's not good. I can look at the options before me and say, you know, that one's a good option for a lot of people, but I don't think it's pleasing to God. It's not acceptable. Or I can look at it and say, you know, that one's not perfect. That's not complete. There's a bigger, there's a better solution here. But unless I'm living for God in the way that we've talked about, you're not, gonna, you're not going to be able to discern it. You're not going to see it because you're going to be distracted and shaped by all the other things that are in your mind and in your heart. So Paul is saying, look, the sum result of all of these things is that you will be able to discern the will of God in your life. That's, the, that's what he's saying. That's, that's what he's telling us. So discerning the will of God is not so much trying to figure out a Rubik's Cube. It is much more looking at our lives and saying, am I living the life that God has called me to live because if you are in this way, then you will be able to discern. You cannot not be in God's will. Let me finally, this morning, I want to close, I want to take the rest of the next few minutes we have together by giving you an example of how this worked out in Paul's life. Paul, of course, wrote the letter to the Romans, great missionary in the first century, incredible church planter. Um, After coming to Christ, Spent about 10 or 12 years preparing, God preparing him, and then goes out and becomes the greatest church planter the world has ever seen. But how do you do that? I mean, you have an entire Roman world that has never heard of Jesus. Where do you start? Where do you go? What do you do? Obviously, decisions need to be made. The will of God needs to be discerned, and he needs to be guided. So I saw this video that when I was in a uh, meeting of pastors back in May, a guy named Randy Hurst, who is a part of the Assemblies of God a National Office working with missions, he presented this video of Paul's second missionary journey. And he was presenting on how the gospel spreads and how God directs people in the spread of the gospel. And as soon as I saw the video, I emailed the guy that was running uh, tech that day. And I said, get me that video. I need that video. Because it so illustrates the way God guides us and leads us uh, in, in life. And so let's look at it in Paul's life in this second missionary journey. 
So he's going to set out to plant churches and to share the gospel. And let's look at how God guides him. So the first thing he starts out, he starts out in Antioch. They go to Tarsus and they go to Lystra. And you'll see that he goes there. He follows, he's following that. And then after getting there, he gets to this point where he want, needs to decide where to go from here after on this journey. And Acts chapter 16, and if you wanted to follow along, Paul's journey is in Acts chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, Paul's journey. But I'm going to read some scriptures for you. But in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, this is what it says. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Paul wants to go to the province of Asia and preach. There are people there that don't know Jesus, who have never heard the gospel. And if you go to the next segment, he wants to go there, but he hits a red light. God says no. And says, Paul says, we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I don't know what forbidden by the Holy Spirit looks like, but they knew. They heard from the Holy Spirit. They're not supposed to go and speak the word in the province of Asia. Okay? So we'll move on from there. So they move on. They don't go to Asia, uh, but they move on to the next spot. They go north. And then they get up there after they hit some cities in north of the province of Asia. And Paul wants to go northern still. He wants to go to the province of Bithynia. He wants to go up to Bithynia. There's people never been to Bithynia. Nobody, nobody has preached the gospel in Bithynia to this point. But then Acts chapter 16, verse 7, And when they had come up to Mysia and attempted to go into Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. Here's Paul, great missionary, great man of God, living his life sacrificially for God, living his life with his mind transformed, not being conformed to thinking of this world. God, I, you know, hey, guys, we're going to Bithynia. No, no, we're not going to Bithynia. Jesus blocked their way. I don't know, and you don't know, it doesn't say what Jesus blocked their way means. I don't know what that looked like. They don't tell us. You know, if we spiritualize it, was uh, some angel standing directly in their path with a flaming sword saying, none shall pass. I, I don't, I don't, I'm guessing it probably didn't look like that. I don't know what Jesus blocked their way meant. Jesus blocked their way may have meant it just wasn't working out. We, every time we tried to go, we couldn't go. Caravan was going to go and, and, and we, you know, we couldn't get with it. They had road construction signs everywhere. And even though every road leads to Rome, it just wasn't working out. You know, it couldn't go every time, you know, I punched in the coordinates to, you know, in my GPS, navigate to Bithynia. It just kept coming back, recalculating, recalculating. I don't know what it looked like, but they couldn't get there. The spirit of Jesus blocked their way. And whatever that looked like, looking back many years later, Luke just said the Spirit of Jesus blocked our way to go to Bithynia. We couldn't go. So sometimes the Spirit of Jesus, sometimes God's Spirit, you'll want to go someplace and sometimes he's going to block your way. But if you are living your life sacrificially for God, not conformed to the thinking and the patterns of this world, transformed and renewed in your thinking, you will know and discern the will of God and you'll follow his will. So they went on. And then they go on to Mysiah and Troas and, and they continue to go on to that. As they get to Mysia, Paul says, uh, so passing through Mysia, Luke writes, I'm sorry, in Acts, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. 
A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you think? He gets this vision from God in the night of this man that says, come to Macedonia and preach. And they think, well, what does this mean? We think it means we're supposed to go to Macedonia and preach. And so that's what they do. They go down to the region of Macedonia and preach the gospel there in that place. And as they do, if you go on with the next segment of the video, as they do, they go up to Neapolis and to Philippi. In those places, they meet people like Lydia. Lydia, who when they went down to the river to pray, uh, Lydia and some women were down there. And we're told that Lydia is a uh, businesswoman. She deals in purple cloth. Um, She apparently has a a successful business. She has a staff there with her. Her household is with her. She's got a house that's large enough to entertain uh, Paul and his, uh, his team to bring back to her house. And Lydia, after Paul shares with her, becomes a believer, and as we see through latest inscription, not only does she become a believer, it seems she becomes a, a great supporter of Paul's ministry. And Lydia would not have met Jesus if Paul had gone to Bithynia. But Lydia comes to Jesus as God weeds Paul. And then later he goes into Philippi. And in Philippi he actually gets thrown in prison. God, where's your will now? But in prison, the jailer comes to know Jesus. Not only the jailer, but his whole family comes to know Jesus and comes to believe and comes to trust and is baptized. And the Philippian jailer would have missed it if Paul had gone to Bithynia. And so God is guiding and leading. Even as Paul had wanted to go certain directions, God's guiding and leading in his steps uh, and in his way. And so after Neapolis and after Philippi, uh, they go down to Thessalonica, and then they go to Berea. In Thessalonica, there are some who believe, and had they gone to Bithynia, maybe Thessalonians would not have come to Jesus, but there are some who believe. And after Thessalonica, there's some persecution that kicks up. They got to get out of Thessalonica. They leave Thessalonica, and they come to Berea. And in Berea, they meet some people who are genuinely interested, and they want to know more, and and they they come to believe, and they want to study the scriptures with Paul. And that would have been great, except... People from Thessalonica heard that Paul and his team had moved on, and they said, we're going to go bother him down in Berea. And so Thessalonians come down and start persecuting Paul in Berea, and Timothy and Luke and those with him say, you know what, Paul, things are just too hot for you right here. They're a little too hot right now. You need to go. We'll stay, but we need to get you out of here for a while, and let us stay. We'll continue the work here. Why don't you take the next boat to Athens? And that's what Paul does. So Paul, you get on the next boat to Athens. We're going to stay here. Go wait for us down there. And that's what Paul does. Paul ends up taking a boat and going to Athens and waiting for them there. And this is, I love this. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. This is, what, this is what the word of God says. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he, and it goes on to talk about how he how he reasoned with the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers and how he preached what is perhaps one of the most famous sermons in all of Scripture, the Sermon on the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. But I love those words in the beginning of the verse. While he was waiting. 
We talk about discerning the will of God. What's God's will for me in this place? God, what's God's will for me? Where's my next job? Where's my next home? Where's my next opportunity? God, what school should I go to? God, where, where should I, what should I do with this decision, with that decision? While he was waiting, he ends up preaching this incredible sermon in Athens. In Athens, think about it. You know from your, your ancient history how pivotal and important the city of Athens was, how many governments were formed based on the way they governed in Athens, how much that influenced the whole world. And all he was doing there was waiting because he had to leave Berea. He, just, he had to leave Berea. He's waiting for Timothy and Luke. He's basically sitting around. And while he was waiting, God calls him and he, he, he just preaches. And he starts out this sermon. And he says, this famous sermon that says, you know, I see that you have altars to many gods and you even have one to an unknown God. I am here to tell you about that unknown God. And he preaches in Athens. See, when you are living your life as a living sacrifice for God, not being conformed to the patterns of this world, transformed and renewed in your thinking, God can use you even while you're waiting. While you are waiting for that college to get back to you, while you are waiting for that better job, while you are waiting for that next home, while you are waiting for your spouse, while you are waiting for God to lead you to that, that boy or that girl for you to marry, while you are waiting for your children to start obeying you, while you are waiting for your, for your kids to grow. While, while you are waiting, sitting there praying, asking God, when is this going to happen? While you are waiting, you can be right in the midst of God's will. You can be used by God. See, sometimes God will work and minister just while we're waiting. So after that, he goes on to Corinth. In Corinth, he has a very um, successful ministry there. We've got the letters, First and Second Corinthians, that he writes back to the church at Corinth. And even though there were some issues there, he, he, he planted a church there at Corinth. And then he leaves Corinth, and he goes on and goes to Ephesus. And he goes to Ephesus, and here's what's interesting about Ephesus. He ends up spending a lot of time in Ephesus. But here's the question, right? He, he goes and he's planted all these churches, and he's gone to all these places. But what about Bithynia? And what about Asia? Because aren't there people there that God loves? And aren't there people there that need to hear the gospel? And it's wonderful that Lydia came to Christ. But aren't there other Lydias in Bithynia? And aren't there other Lydias in the province of Asia? It's wonderful that the Philippian jailer will be in heaven and we'll meet him one day. But aren't there other jailers in the province of Asia and Bithynia? Why? You know, why not them? And we don't always have the perspective when we are in the midst of it. But when we trust God's leading, we can see later God laying out his plan. So he spends this time in Ephesus and he ends up spending actually a couple of years in Ephesus. And it says this in Acts chapter 19, 8 through 10. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples. Reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, 
This took place for two years. So here's what happens. He's meeting in the synagogue. He meets some persecution, and he says, look, we, we got, I got to get away with these disciples. I've just got to spend some time teaching these people about God. So he goes to this place called the School of Tyrannus, the Hall of Tyrannus. We don't even know really what it is, but it was probably a place where lectures happened regularly, and somehow Paul was able to use it, whether he rented it, whether Tyrannus was a believer, we don't know. But somehow Paul was able to use it and taught daily for two years, and people would come to the School of Tyrannus, and they would learn from Paul, and you know what they would do? Then they would leave, and they would take the gospel out from that place. And through those two years of ministry at Ephesus, then we see that the gospel continues, and God's plan goes on through Ephesus to Asia to Bithynia and all these disciples. In fact, at the end of that verse, in chapter 19, verse 10, it said, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. See, God didn't forget about the province of Asia. And if you go to the next slide, you see all the places churches were planted. God didn't forget about Bithynia. God didn't forget about all these other cities. God had people come to Paul. He had another plan and he brought them to him and they went out and all these churches are planted. See, God had a plan, and as Paul was able to live his life sacrificially for God, he sees this plan being able to be played out in different ways. And so all these, all these places, the gospel does eventually go. Uh, though Paul, if he had gone to Asia himself, he would have gone from town to town. But God had a plan. He's not going to bring you to Ephesus, and people are going to come there, and then they're going to go out. Reminds me a little bit of Boston, where all of a sudden you've got people from all over the world that come here to get an education, and then they go out all around the world. It's people that come here from places where we cannot get the gospel into those countries, and they come here, and we can tell them about Jesus, and they can go out. That's a sermon for another day, though. But anyway, let me give you one last thing on Paul, because uh, he's so, so he's directed by God in a number of ways. Uh, let me give you one last scripture. I want to uh, give you a scripture from Acts chapter 20, just after verse 19, at the end of this second missionary journey, Acts chapter 20. It says, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. Say these next two words with me. He decided... Now you can do better than that. Let's say him again. He decided to return through Macedonia. Are those two words any less the will of God than when Paul was directed by the Holy Spirit, than when Jesus was blocking his way, than when a vision was given to him of Macedonia? I don't think they are any less in God's will than those other places. See, there are times when God will direct you by his Holy Spirit will speak to you and sometimes we want that all the time. There are times when circumstances will block your way. There are times where God may give you a vision. He's so, this is so important that he doesn't want you to get it wrong. So he gives you a vision and there are times when you will just, as a transformed person, not conform to the thinking of this world, living your life for God, will just decide and you will be in God's will. Because you are living your life for God. 
See, that's what Paul's getting at. If you will live your life this way, the sum result will be your life lived in the will of God. That you don't have to spend your life trying to figure out God's will like it's a mystery wrapped in a riddle, that it's a Rubik's Cube, that God's trying to hide it from you, that God's saying, well, I hope you choose the right answer. That's not the way God works. If you want to know God's will, know God. If you know God, you will know God's will. When you live your life committed to him, not conformed to the thinking of this world, transformed and renewed in your mind, you cannot not be in the will of God. Maybe it looks something like this. So this is what it is. You commit to living for God and not yourself and not anything else. You're careful in your thinking that it winds up with God's word and you're not being molded to the patterns of this world. You've allowed time and space for the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to transform your thinking. You've taken time to listen to the Holy Spirit and then what do you do after that? Do what you want. Make a decision. Because if you are doing all those things, you have subjected yourself to God's leading in your life. You are allowing yourself to be completely lived for God. You make a decision. Knowing that God is leading and directing. Knowing that, as the scriptures say, we might make our plans, but God, he orders our steps. And so maybe you make a plan sometime to go into Bithynia. God says, no, Bithynia is not for you. I got another plan for Bithynia. So he blocks your way. And you don't know why. Because God, this is, this is good and acceptable and perfect. These are people who don't know you. These are people who, who haven't heard the gospel. They need you. And Bithynia is an important city. No, nope. it's not for you. It's for someone, but it's not for you. And so God leads and directs. And so sometimes, maybe it's a vision. Sometimes maybe it's a, the voice of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's a scripture. Sometimes it's you living your life for God, sold out for him, not conformed to the world's thinking, transformed and renewed, making a decision. And God leads you and guides you in that way. We trust that he is. I close with this illustration by Pastor Max Lucado, uh, who uh, is a writer and a pastor and talks about his daughter's uh, idea for him for a job one day. He said, uh, Max says, when my oldest daughter was six years old, she and I were having a discussion about my work, and it seemed she wasn't too happy with my chosen profession. She wanted me to leave the ministry, and his daughter said, I like you as a preacher, she explained, but I just really wish you sold snow cones. (laughs) An honest request from a pure heart. It made sense to her that the happiest people in the world were the men who drove snow cone trucks. You play music, you sell goodies, you make kids happy. What more could you want? I heard her request, Max says, but I didn't heed it. Why? Because I knew better. I know what I'm called to do and what I need to do. The fact is, I knew more about life than she did. And Max says, it's the same with God. God hears our requests, but his answer is not always what we'd like it to be. Why? Because God knows more about life than we do. Sometimes you want to go into Bithynia. Sometimes God's going to block your way. 
Sometimes he'll guide you by the Holy Spirit's voice. Sometimes he'll give you a vision. More often than not, it's going to be you living your life committed fully and completely to God, making sure your thinking's not conformed to this world, making sure you're constantly being transformed and renewed, and making a decision in God's will. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the close of this message, I recognize that in the midst of this room, there are men and women and young people who have decisions to make. We live in a world that often offers us more than one good option, and we're told to choose the best one. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the people in the church that will live our lives sacrificially for you, not conformed to this world, transformed in our thinking so that we may know God's will. If you're here this morning, and maybe that's you, maybe you're in that situation, maybe you've known, knew coming in today that you've got a decision you've got to make this week. Maybe you've got a medical decision you need to make. Maybe you've got a work decision you need to make, a family decision. And you asked, you know, for one more day. Whoever else is involved, you put it off maybe for one more day. Give me till Monday. Maybe you came here this morning asking God, give me a sign. God, show me what I'm supposed to do. I want to pray for you this morning that not only will God lead you and guide you, but that you will trust that God is guiding you. That as you look at those decisions and as you evaluate them and as you make a decision, that you and I will trust that God is guiding you. That God's will is not like a Rubik's Cube, but as you subject yourself to him, that he will guide your decisions. Lord, I pray for that person today who needs to give an answer to someone tomorrow. Lord, I just ask that you would put within them the faith and trust that you are guiding their steps, that they would walk not in fear, but in faith. Lord, that they would know that we make our decisions, but you will order our steps. And so, Lord, I ask that you would, yes, grant wisdom, but many times you've already given the wisdom we need but we just need the courage to make a decision and to trust you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that in the heart of every man and every woman that's here that is in that situation. Lord, we love you. May we be a church repurposed, transformed, not conformed, living our lives sacrificially to you in light of your mercies. This is our spiritual act of worship.